This morning's Gospel reading is found in John, chapter 18, beginning at verse 12, and is on page 1681 in the Bibles. Jesus taken to Annas. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. Are you not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials around the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, Are you not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster began to crow. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, because the Jews did not enter the palace, they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. 
Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Are you a king then? said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Jenny. Stepping in at the last minute with illnesses around the parish. Thank you. Long passage as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that there were people able to give us the kind of detail that would give us um, confidence in what's happened. They would able us to understand more of what your purposes were and how they played out. And we pray this morning that you would open our hearts uh, to receive once again uh, the news of your grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is from another place. A fascinating response to everything that was happening around him. A fascinating conclusion uh, to some of the expectations of what people were hoping would happen. I've said at the beginning that this is Palm Sunday. It remembers the day where Jesus entered Jerusalem a week or just a few days before these events, 2,000 years ago, and they proclaimed him the king. They proclaimed him that he was the one that they were expecting. They took palms from the the trees and laid them before him. They took their cloaks and laid them before him as a sign of their submission and acceptance of his sovereign rule. 
We will share communion shortly. And within the communion prayer, we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, taken from that incident, taken from that expectation that Christ would come and make a difference in us. And we're familiar with the difference that we hope for. We, we, we long for it. We, we want to remind ourselves of it. It's part of the prayer. It's part of who we are. But how did he get here? How did he get to be on trial? How did he get to be in front of Pilate? How did he get to be a mob outside crying for his execution? Some of the deepest and hardest, one of the hardest things to try to understand, isn't it? One possible explanation is that the crowd outside, uh, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, were people who had been in the countryside. They had experienced his ministry. They had seen his healings, heard his teaching. They had followed him and they were recognizing him. But the crowd in Jerusalem were not of the same order. In fact, Matthew records in his version uh, that the people were terrified of what this might mean for them. In Matthew 21, we see, we read, the whole city was stirred up. The word for stirred up is like an earthquake, a tremor going through the town, through the city. There was this sense of expectation. All of these expectations that the crowd outside and the people of Jerusalem, how do they clash? And we want to hold on to the idea, don't we, that we would be like that jubilant, rejoicing crowd. But they didn't know what was coming. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know that it would end up like this. Perhaps some of them changed their mind as they mixed with people they knew in the city. Perhaps they lost a little bit of heart like Peter. Perhaps they sort of just ran out of breath. They ran out of enthusiasm as things turned a dark corner. It's easy to support a team that wins all the time, isn't it? It's much harder to support a team that goes through tough times. And so we find this passage draws together all of these things where expectations and reality collide. And I want us to just think this morning a little bit about what were the expectations and how are we going to live those out in a world against which sometimes we collide. In um, Graham Goldsworthy's book, According to Plan, he outlines and summarizes the whole Bible in about five paragraphs. I'm going to read them for us. Uh, you may have heard them before, um, but um, I want you to just think about how this king was going to sort of work out his purposes. Goldsworthy writes this. In the beginning, the king creates a realm of delightful diversity and unsurpassed harmony, reflecting his love and trust. He entrusts his two primary stewards with the development of this realm under his overall rule. Unfortunately, a disgraced former government minister encourages the stewards to rebel against the king's rule, casting the entire realm into disarray, decay, and disease. The stewards and their descendants then establish their own alternative petty kingdoms, and time after time, the king sends emissaries to invite them to the end their insurrection and to accept a treaty which acknowledges his rightful rule. 
Time after time, the rebels agree, but they inevitably renege and continue their rebellion. Under their inept and corrupt governance, the realm's diversities become divisive. Harmonies fade into a half-recalled melody, which lingers only in the memory of a few. Grieving and angered, the king undertakes an unusual campaign of reconquest. He infiltrates the rebel lands and announces he's re-establishing his reign. Wherever he travels, he defeats rebel forces with provocative demonstrations of love and justice. He restores harmony and wholeness, and he triumphs in a decisive battle, not by an overwhelming show of force, but by offering reconciliation to the rebels through a surprising demonstration of humility and self-sacrifice. Shocked into sensibility, some of the rebels repent of their rebellion and enlist in this king's program for reconciliation and reconquest, asserting the king's rule over their territory. They slowly begin to construct new harmonies from diversity and nurture order from disorder, laboring confidently in light of the king's inevitable triumph. That is a summary of the whole Bible narrative that's a summary of what the Bible is about. It's about God sending a king to restore his order on earth. And it's about our part in that and what Christ had to do in order to assert that and make that possible. So when we think about what this sort of king was going to do, we have a frame. We have a lens through which we can look at this passage and see that God's purposes are still being worked out and that we are now looking at that, that final culmination, the approach if you like, to that overwhelming self-sacrifice that Christ makes. I don't want to gloss over Peter's denials. I think those are well worth studying. Um, and I think we often encounter those sort of situations. But I want to look at today what Jesus was, was, was pulling together here. So let's have a quick survey. Early on in this passage, in verse 19, um, the high priest was concerned, we see, about the, high, about the disciples and his teaching. There was a concern or a misunderstanding from the Jewish leadership, from the high priests, uh, about the sorts of things that Jesus was saying. The issues were theological. They were about belief in God and about how God would work in the world and how he was working out his purposes. Now, those are interesting questions, aren't they? Those are questions that we long, I hope, to share with people. This is what God is like. This is what he's doing. This is how he's fleshing it out. And I find that a really exciting thing. But they reject Jesus' answers. Uh, and in fact, they punish him for it. They strike him and they send him away, unable to comprehend or, or work this better version of account of, of, of what's going on into their account of what the world is about. So from them, verse 28 we see that the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. The issue is now no longer theological, but is now political. They can't defeat his theology, his understanding, his expression of who God is, but they'll defeat him through political means. The claim they make, we see, is vague. In verse 30, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. A simplistic an undermining argument, isn't it? He must have done something wrong. Why else would we have him here? Well, Jesus has allowed himself to be carried this far, hasn't he? 
We read Pilate is initially, in verse 31, uninterested, judging by your own laws. But we find in verse 32 that the Jews want to have him executed. It's not normally something that they were allowed to do. Stonings in the street were sort of more random events, um, and they were sort of something that the Romans were trying to sort of clamp down on. But in verse 32, we realize that if it's a Roman execution, it will be, cru- it will be crucifixion. And Jesus has earlier warned his disciples, hasn't he, that you will see me lifted up. He's talking about his cross. He's talking about the way in which he will die, the way in which he will strangely be glorified for achieving God's purposes. Jesus, in this interesting little conversation here, and thank you, Jenny, for taking time to read through it, we see this interesting thing, don't we, that clearly the Jews have elaborated on their charge because Pilate comes to him and says, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And of course, he is, but he's the king of so much more. But Jesus challenges him. He gives him a chance to decide for himself. Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? There's something about a decision creeping through this story, isn't there? The crowd decided at triumphal entry, the crowd decided this was the one. The city decided, no, it wasn't. The, the, the um, chief priests decided they couldn't match what he was saying with what they understood. Pilate is now in the position where he needs to understand for himself what's really going on. And Jesus gives him the opportunity to decide for himself. But... Pilate both despises Jewish problems and he fears retribution from Rome, his own masters. So he tries to wangle out of it by by declaring Jesus innocent of the charges and thereby there's no execution today. But he fails to appease the crowd. After failing to do that, Pilate offers them a choice to release one prisoner, which was the tradition, and it's Barabbas or Bar Abbas, or in Hebrew, son Bar, of the father Abbas, who is released. It's all happened so quickly, isn't it? It's like things have just sort of tipped, and they're running downhill, and they're out of control. But Jesus remains in control. Last week, Ian helpfully reminded us that it was Caiaphas who prophesied that it would be better that one man should die for the people. Even in their error, they were able to see or have some inkling of God's grander purposes. So let's stop and just think about what's going on here. John is showing us a number of things, isn't he? He's showing us the guilt and the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. The people who should most understand are the ones who are least willing to change. The ones with the most knowledge and the ones with the most to lose are the ones who are least flexible, the ones who are least able to adapt and understand. And it's an interesting thing there, isn't there? Is that the di- there's the dynamic of reputation and of being known for something that they would lose because, you know, like the emperor's new clothes, 
everything would have been exposed. Actually, you were wrong. This is the one that God was sending after all. We see that Jesus is presented as the ultimate king, one not even of this world, one of a world that has got a different set of qualities and values, the sorts of things that Goldsworthy wanted us to try to understand. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from the, by the Jews, but my kingdom is from another place. That means to say, if my kingdom was like yours, this would be war, but we're doing something else. This is something different. This is something grander, bigger than you can imagine. We find the innocence of Jesus. Unable to find any theological problem, the Jews have handed him over to Pilate, who is unable to find any kind of other problem, any other charge against him. Jesus is innocent. When an innocent person dies, we ought to ask why it happened. We ought to reflect on why did they allow, why did that carry on? Why did they allow that to continue? Why, if there was no charge against them, did they continue with this? Isaiah talks about as a sheep before his, its shearers is silent. Jesus says nothing to defend himself. He just gives Pilate the opportunity to understand for himself. A challenging thing. Jesus is innocent. And if an innocent man is to die, then why? If he allows himself to die, then why? And throughout the Gospels, Jesus points out, even at the Last Supper, that this would be for the salvation of people. When the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, he will be the salvation of God's people. This will be something that rescues us. This will be something that delivers us from death, from judgment, which we all face. Because we are no different from the Jews and the Romans in this story. We're not very different from Peter. Jesus' death has a purpose. Its purpose is to be instead of those who have sinned. And that's you and that's me. So I wonder if we've ever done anything like this. I wonder if we've ever been a bit like Peter and gone with the crowd, gone with what was straightforward, gone with what was acceptable. Have we ever denied him that we were part of a church or part of a community? Have we ever been quiet when actually we could have spoken out? Have we ever done what Pilate did, failed to stand up, failed to decide for himself, let other things happen, be influenced by the crowd? Have we ever been like Peter, just ashamed and then broken by the things that we've done? In other Gospels, we read that he ran away weeping. Have we ever been like that, so ashamed that we didn't think there was a way back? And we might be tempted to lose heart. We might be tempted to think, what was this for? We might be tempted to deny that we really had any part of it. We might, like the high priest, just hold on to the bits we can understand rather than hand them over to this, this God who does these profoundly 
different things in ways that are just not like our own, we might prepare to compromise and sometimes do this, live like this, and sometimes live in a way that nobody would know any different. Jesus, though, is here at the center of it, isn't it? God has presented him as the focal point, the focal person, the main way in which we would come to know him. And he does it by being courageous in the face of opposition and danger and death. He does it by giving and presenting the truth so there are no arguments against him. And he does it so that we can, he can bring in this kingdom, which though powerful, doesn't win by force. God's worthy wrote by demonstrating acts of love, a sacrificial love. Jesus stands at this moment in this gospel as the willing sacrifice to bring the kingdom to us. That's really quite profound, isn't it? He's standing there as part of God's plan, as the way in which we can come to know God. His death will be the curse that we should bear. Death on a cross or death on a tree was considered cursed by the Jews. And yet Jesus will take a death like that, cursed for our sake. And yet this is God's working out of his purposes. That we might choose, that we might come to God and say, can I be part of your kingdom It's about decisions, isn't it? It's about people making poor decisions. Caiaphas and the high priests chose not to explore. And that was true from the beginning. If you think about the nativity story, Herod says, where's this king going to be born? And the the chief priests at the time say, well, over there somewhere. But they don't go to look for themselves. They're not interested. The chief priests stay back. They choose, they decide not to wrestle with this. Pilate, rather than actually engaging with Jesus, just says there's a debate about what is truth anyway. Starts to try to bring alternative views into it. Peter chooses to look after himself. All sorts of things that go wrong. But then if Peter can be forgiven, so can we. Because what God achieves at the cross here, what God will achieve here, is the restoration and the reconciliation of man with God. That our sinfulness and our rebellion against him will be brought under his control. That we will be made at one with him again. According to uh, Cornell University, on average, we make 227.6 decisions a day. There is, there is some specious internet-type rubbish which suggests 35,000, but I can't even comprehend that number, let alone that many decisions. But 227 decisions a day, and I suppose most of them are autopilot, like, shall I put my indicator on if I'm turning this corner? Yes, please, do. I'm normally the person behind you who hasn't got the indicator on. But we make a lot of decisions every day. And some of these are just things that we, we, we don't really, really actually think about. 
Some of them are deliberate decisions, aren't they? Some of them are decisions where we can choose to allow what's going on, what God is doing, into that relationship, into that situation, into that circumstance. There are decisions that, where we have to choose God, God's way, God's thing, uh, the way that he would do it. Because Jesus talks about the people here who are on the side of truth. Do you see that in verse uh, 37? For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So we need to make decisions that are truthful and based on what Christ is doing according to God's purposes. And so that's about being re reconciling, it's about loving, it's sometimes it's about sacrificing what we might otherwise choose to do, allowing our reputation or our understanding to be filled instead with what God would do. It's interesting, you know, we used to wear those little bracelets, didn't we? What would Jesus do? We need to renovate, we need to bring them back. Because Jesus asks the people who are on the side of truth to listen to him. And so how do we do that? How can we allow that to, to, to infuse us, to, to shape our conversation, to, to allow us to approach things the same way that God did? In this story, Jesus Christ has endured all sorts of things. This is the culmination. And he's putting himself aside at all times, isn't he? And I wonder if that's something we can do. I wonder if we can see that each person around us is loved by God and cherished by God and can be forgiven by God and wants to be redeemed by God. And that we would be able to see uh, people the way that God sees us. The way that Jesus may have been even looking at Pilate when he said, decide for yourself. Is that the sort of thing we can do? Is that the sort of thing that we can allow to happen? Those bigger decisions, not the little ones like indicating left or right, although please do, but the big ones. How am I going to wrestle with this situation? How am I going to make this better? One of my favorite essays, um, sorry, I'm aware of time, um, one of my favourite essays um, is titled The Constructive Displeasure of Mercy. And I've shared it with a few people because it talks about how when things are terrible, we've only got three choices. We either, we either stay out of it and just watch it explode or we get stuck in and make it worse. How many of those? I've done both of those, by the way. <laughs> okay. But God's way is to say, this isn't right and it offends me, but I'm going to do something about it. And it's always the hardest choice. It's always the most difficult thing to do. But it's what's going on here. Because in this moment, Christ is providing restoration, atonement for rebellious people to be back with God. And if that would be our mindset, because we're people of the truth too, then that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? And that we might be able to just break into people's lives, not with force, because that's not his kingdom, but with love and sacrifice and faith that God would make something of it. Because God's decision from the beginning was to use this moment that John has written about to bring us closer to him, that we might be his people and he would be our God. And he would write his laws on our hearts and fill us with his spirit so that we might be people of truth.
Should we stop for a moment? Father, just pray in this little moment that you would bring to light those things where we can be more truthful, where your qualities, your truth, your love, your self-sacrifice. Lord, would you show us those places where those would be helpful around us? Lord, maybe we failed this week in spite of our earnest efforts and profits and promises. Lord, would you remind us of Peter's, the forgiveness you had for Peter? Father, as we come to communion shortly, would you remind us that you died for our sin, for our rebellion? And Spirit, in this moment, would you just speak to us one at a time? Help us to know you are there. Wash us and cleanse us, we pray. Speak to us, guide us, counsel us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.